0: be considered that there is nothing more difficult to carry out, nor more doubtful of success, nor more dangerous to handle, than to initiate a new order of things. So said Machiavelli, the Italian statesman, back in the 15th century, and 500 years on, few people would disagree, would they? At best, change is difficult. Not least those who have tried to change just about anything will know this, that to initiate a new order of things remains doubtful and even dangerous to attempt. And so it's unsurprising that in 2008 the ability to manage change is a highly prized skill. And we find that the marketplace is flooded with uh, books about how to manage the transition in any organization and in any situation. One of the most striking things about the book of Acts, this book that we've been studying since January this year, under the title of the Spreading Flame, is, is this. In many ways, the book of Acts is a book about change. It's a book about transition. Sandwiched between the beginning of Acts and the conclusion of Acts is a period of about 30 years. The early church undergoes a colossal period of change. It is altered almost beyond recognition. From a parochial, local, Jerusalem church. Believers coming solely from a Jewish heritage. By Acts' conclusion, we find that this Christian community is mainly comprised of Gentiles. Christians from a non-Jewish origin who are committed to taking the good news of Jesus to the very ends of the earth. Make no mistake, this was a cataclysmic transition. And what we're going to see in the next couple of Acts studies is how this change began and how this change progressed. The big sea change, if you look there in chapter 10, uh, begins with the story of Cornelius and Peter. And I do encourage you to come back for the defining moment as Peter has titled it. And yet we're going to see this morning that already God is beginning to turn the tide He's preparing the ground. So that's the title of the sermon this morning then, Preparing for Change. Would you reopen your Bible please to Acts chapter 9. We've already had our verses read for us this morning. Let's have our Bibles open before us. Acts 9 verses 31 to 43. You'll notice the NIV titles this section, Aeneas and Dorcas. Man and woman who are on the receiving end of two stunning miracles. Yet on closer inspection, there's more going on here than just, if I can say it like that, just two miracles. There's more. Through these miracles, we first see that Christ's powerful work is continuing through his church. And at the same time, these stories show in various ways that there is a shifting frontier in terms of mission. Christ is powerfully extending his kingdom out. In Acts 9, to the margins of Jewish society, the very fringe. And then in Acts 10, even beyond the fringe, to the pagan Gentiles. So let's look at these two aspects, shall we, together. And they stand in some tension. What continues... And then what is changing in God's plan. So let's begin with continuity. The continuing power of Christ. Isn't it assuring to know today that the same Lord Jesus Christ is still powerfully at work in his church and through his people. These dovetailed accounts you see before us, they evidence this basic fact. Christ's powerful work has not ceased. Even though he is located in heaven, it continues on earth through his church, the work of Jesus. In Acts 9, Jesus is specifically working through the apostle Peter. Peter, as we've already seen, is one of the key players in the drama of Acts. In fact, one of the ways to get a handle on the structure of the book of Acts, and there are many ways, is to realize that it revolves around two main characters. Humanly speaking, that is, there are two main individuals who take the stage. In chapters 1 to 12, the apostle Peter is central. Peter appears more often than anyone else, and he is the most influential figure from a human point of view. And then from chapter 13, you find that Peter fades out of the story, and rising to take his place is the apostle Paul, or previously Saul. Right through to the end of chapter 26, the spotlight follows Paul, who advances Christ's kingdom to the Gentiles. Now, where we're studying this morning, Peter is still in the box seat. And this is why, while uh, Paul, Saul, has made a cameo appearance uh, at the beginning of chapter 9, he immediately vanishes again from the script, and Peter again takes center stage. Peter's ministry continues. And what kind of ministry was it that Peter uh, was doing? Well, notice firstly that he was pastoring churches. How rarely, I suppose, we think of this apostle in this light. By our caricatures, the apostle Peter is merely the impulsive disciple or the fiery evangelist. But Peter, the pastor, how rarely do we think of him like this? And yet, in the words of verse 32, he was traveling about the country. And whilst on his travels, visiting the saints at Lydda. And later, he spends quality time with Christians in Joppa. Peter's doing pastoral visitation. Specifically, he's visiting new churches. Churches which had sprung up recently beyond Jerusalem. We're not quite sure how they got started. Perhaps they were an outgrowth of Pentecost in Acts 2. Remember the visitor's? came to Jerusalem, they were converted to Christ, and maybe they'd returned to these outlying areas. Possibly, Lydda had been evangelized, however, following the great persecution in Acts chapter 8. You remember, after many had been forced to flee Jerusalem, the persecuted preached the word wherever they went, maybe in Lydda and its ilk. Whatever the case, there was a church in Lydda, and to there Peter goes to visit to strengthen and to pastor the saints. What an encouragement this must have been to these believers. Just think about it. Can you imagine being one of those new disciples of Jesus in this small town, this virtually nowhere place on the map, 25 miles by foot from Jerusalem? Who's going to bother doing your follow-up discipleship? Suddenly, knock, knock, knock. Who's at the door? It's the Apostle Peter. And it's not a joke. And he says, do you mind if I come in and stay for a while? And he's the leader of the twelve disciples. And he's the, one of those who's in the inner circle of the twelve. And he's the stalwart leader of the Jerusalem church. And uh, you, you say, well, I think we could find you a bed somewhere. And so Peter stays, presumably teaching the scriptures, coming alongside local leaders and nurturing younger Christians in the faith. He's pastoring, he's caring, he's visiting. All good ideas today, incidentally. Not only, however, is Peter pastoring churches, he's also doing something else. The text says that he was performing miracles. wasn't a bad resume, was it, Peter's? He could preach the word, he could pastor the flock, and he could raise the dead. All in a day's work for an apostle. Today he'll make a crippled man walk, and a dead woman rise. Although in actual fact, if you ask Peter himself, he goes to great lengths to point out that it is the Lord Jesus himself who is really doing the ministry through him. Peter's ministry continues, but in a sense, the main point is Jesus' ministry continues through Peter. Take the healing of Aeneas by example. You'll see Jesus at work here, I think. This man, Aeneas, we don't know exactly what his condition was. Suffice to say, he couldn't walk. He had been bedridden for eight long years. Then one day, this man and his condition come to the attention of the apostle Peter. And he stops whatever he's doing in terms of teaching, counseling, encouraging the saints, and endowed with the authority of an apostle, and filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, and coming under the auspices of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, he heals Aeneas immediately. Notice that Peter is careful to attribute this miracle to Jesus Christ. He does not say, if you look at verse 34, I, Peter, heal you. But instead, the Lord Jesus Christ heals you. He's saying, I'm just the helper. Jesus is the healer. I'm just the servant, but it's really the master who is at work. And the result confirms Jesus' involvement. Because just as when Jesus healed during his three years of earthly ministry, so now via his heavenly ministry, the healing is immediate and it is complete. Just read the Gospels. During his ministry, Jesus didn't do gradual healings, with six months' physiotherapy thrown in. They were nearly all completely instantaneous. There's only one example I can think of where it was a two-stage thing. And it wasn't just that these healings improved things, they fixed things. And this is why Aeneas is told to get up. It's a little bit impolite of the Apostle Peter. This guy's been lying on his back for eight years. Couldn't he have given him a hand? But Peter wanted to show you, see, how complete the healing was. You can get up. And then he tells him, moreover, to gather up, to tidy up his mat. Again, the implication is that you're well enough to do that yourself. See, this is miraculous healing Jesus style. This is miraculous healing the apostles' style. Incidentally, it's a bit of an issue with at least some of the so-called miraculous healings today. That it isn't in the style always of the apostles, and it isn't in the style of Jesus whom they followed. And you hear of people getting miraculously healed, 30% or 50%. doesn't sound very miraculous. And in fact, years before, Jesus had performed a carbon copy of this very miracle. Christ had said to a lame man, in Peter's presence, I tell you, this is Mark 2.11, get up, take your mat, and go home. Now through Peter, Jesus repeats the miracle. Peter works, but Jesus continues to work through him. And it's a similar case with the resurrection of Tabitha. If you want a fascinating study, compare Mark 5.35 and following with Acts 9.36 and following. Peter's miracle is almost a rerun of a previous miracle of Jesus. Back in the day when during his earthly ministry, Jesus raised a little girl named Talitha. And even the names are close, except it's not Talitha, but Tabitha. Tabitha too, or Dorcas, becomes sick and dies. It's dreadfully upsetting because Tabitha was something of a good Samaritan. She was always doing good and she was helping the poor. And she was the kind of person whose funeral service would just be jam-packed to the doors, except she didn't have a funeral service. She died in the town of Joppa. She really died. Peter was in Lydda, ten miles away. And two men were sent from Joppa to Lydda to get Peter. And evidently, I think... With some expectation, rather than burying Tabitha immediately, which was customary, instead they lay her body in an upper room. And they leave her there for Peter to arrive. If you know the Old Testament, it's interesting too, because often in the Old Testament, resurrections happened in upper rooms. Maybe they'd even heard of Ineas' healing, and this had raised some expectation. And so they send for Peter with some measure of faith, and the apostle comes immediately. He thinks it nothing to travel ten miles for one pastoral case. He arrives at the house, he goes upstairs into the room, and like Jesus on an earlier day, the mourners are there, and he immediately sends them out of the room. This will be no showy miracle And alone, Peter prays, and then in words almost identical to Jesus, he says, Tabitha, get up. There's only one letter of a difference. Jesus had said, Talitha cum, and Peter says, Tabitha cum, get up, Tabitha. And he took her by the hand, verse 41, and he helped her to her feet. She wasn't gradually resuscitated, it seems. She was immediately raised through Peter, by Jesus. And the result was remarkable, as in Aeneas' case also. Not only the continuing life of Tabitha, but the new life in conversion terms of other people. Verse 42, this became known all over Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. Similarly, in the case of Aeneas, we're told that many turned to the Lord. You see, the miracle makes the people receptive to the word. Now, there are many thorny issues and much too many to cover in a 30-minute sermon that I would love to explore with you. Of course, the big issue that we ask in passages like this is what is the relevance to us? If somebody dies, should we expect a resurrection from the dead? If someone has an organic disease... Should we expect healing complete to come to them? Let me just say that God's word obviously makes it clear that God can do such things. God can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. I think that's the prerogative of being God. And moreover, we know in the New Testament that elders in the church are certainly mandated to pray for the sick. And that's something that we practice here in this church. And God can heal. At the same time, though, let me be frank, I don't think that any of us here are apostles. The apostles and some of the so-called seven, if you read in Acts, seem to have been the only ones with this particular authority in pronouncing healing on people. It's different than praying for healing. They're actually pronouncing it after praying for it. I doubt that these sorts of pronouncements are common today even if healing is still possible, and we certainly pray for that to the Lord. What we can be clear about is that Christ continues his work through his church, and don't miss this, because this is the key thing, the stress in this passage is in practical terms. Jesus works. Jesus works in his world not only by the ministry of the word of God, but also through the practical deeds of his people. See, these stories say nothing about preaching. And Acts is a book full of preaching. It's strange. There's nothing said about the spoken word. I think preaching is implied, certainly, in various places. I mean, no one could have turned to the Lord unless they knew of the Lord. And no one could know of the Lord unless someone told them of the Lord. So somebody was preaching, weren't they? Nevertheless, the emphasis here is upon Christ's practical ministry. Jesus, through Peter, is not only preaching, he is pastoring, and he is caring, and he is healing. He's meeting physical needs as well as spiritual needs. You know, New Testament Christianity is a word and deed Christianity. It's not word without deed, and it's not deed without word. It's both together. Some would give you the impression that it's an either-or choice. You know, and you can go into some churches and the rallying cry is, We're a word church. And that's okay. But often that's all they mean that they do. And they get twitchy if you mention social concern or helping the poor or doing something pastoral and practical because it's all about proclaiming Christ in evangelism such people need to understand that it does not undermine the word to serve the needy. On the contrary to that, our declaration is confirmed by our deeds. You know, you go into other churches and it's just the opposite problem, don't you? Preach the word is an unheard cry. It is perceived to be an unhelpful practice outdated today. And the really depressing thing is that many of these churches are fantastic in terms of the way they help people in physical terms. But it's all you need is love. And you certainly don't need preaching. Unfortunately, in those cases, they may be soothing people's bodies, but they are not saving people's souls. I hope we will be neither of these extremes as a church. Tim Keller, a very thoughtful pastor, writes this. Think about this word and deed are the proverbial two wings of an aeroplane. Which wing is more important? I don't know about you, but I like my planes to have two wings. I feel more comfortable when they've got both. I think they're going to fly better that way. You know, a church really does do ministry better when it's got the two wings. Let's not debate the priorities. Let's just do them both. As Jesus did, as Peter did, as Tabitha did. I wonder what you are doing. Let me give this as a personal challenge this morning. What you are doing on a week-to-week basis in terms of practical ministry. Does merciful deeds factor into my Christian life, into my schedule? Do I proactively ask the question every single week, How can I minister Jesus to somebody in a very simple, practical fashion? Is there some financial need that I could meet this week? Is there some time that I could give to someone who would really appreciate that time? Is there a skill I can bring? Is there a meal I could cook? These are not inconsequential things in the kingdom of God. Peter served, and Christ's continuing power was demonstrated through his practical ministry. Now, along with this continuity, notice that a further change is in the offering. Secondly, and uh, more briefly, notice that God is preparing his church for change. As well as the continuing power of Christ, there is, however, a shifting frontier in terms of ministry. Peter was accustomed to reaching out with the message of Christ exclusively to those who were Jews. And usually the most orthodox Jews at that. Whether Peter likes it or not, God has been mounting an assault on his prejudices and has been pushing back the the boundaries and the borders of where he does ministry. Back in chapter 8 of Acts, Peter had made a visit to new converts in Samaria to some heretic half-Jews who had become Christians. Maybe Peter has even heard the reports of Philip the Evangelist, who on a desert road had seen an Ethiopian, an African, come to faith in Jesus. And now in Acts chapter 9, we notice that the boundaries are continuing to be pushed back. Notice two things. On the one hand, there is a changing perspective for Peter... About where ministry should happen. About the location of where ministry happens. Neither of these two incidents happen in Jerusalem, obviously. They happen far beyond the heartland. The healing of Aeneas takes place in Lydda. Lydda was 25 miles northwest of Jerusalem. And what is significant about Lydda is this. It was not a hotbed of Judaism. Many people there, Jews, were not regarded as holding the Jewish law as tightly as their Jerusalem friends. It also had a sizable Gentile or non-Jewish population. And so many Jews, Hebraic Jews like Peter, just wouldn't visit Lydda if they could help it. Even less frequented was the second town Joppa. Joppa sat on the seacoast. It was 35 miles, another 10 miles uh, northwest. And there in Joppa, this was a cosmopolitan seaport. It did have some Jews, but it was teeming with Gentiles. And again, it wasn't the kind of place for a good Jew to be. Here's the point. While Peter was ministering still to Jews, it will be Gentiles from Acts 10, he is doing it on the periphery of Judaism. He's on the very frontier. And he is seeing God working even in pagan areas. Which must have been a surprise to Peter. God is working far beyond the safety and the orthodoxy of Jerusalem. I wonder if we need to have this kind of realization too. Amazing sometimes how bound we are in terms of locating location and place with what God is going to do we can believe that in some particular location God will work much more than in some other place I wonder whether half our problem in the west is that we think God is working everywhere else but here in our locale sure he's working in China, sure he's working in South America but uh, Edinburgh seems a little out of God's reach Or maybe we think that God works in our church building. There's a common misconception. And not in our workplace. Jerusalem's where the spiritual stuff happens. But you don't know what it's like on the frontier. And we think that power's not available out in the sticks. Uh, Some of you, I'm sure, have been watching Wimbledon this week. And uh, there's been much discussion about the technology at Wimbledon they have this uh, contraption called Hawkeye. And Hawkeye helps them to check whether the ball is inside or outside the line. problem is that the technology is only available on two courts. Center court, the main stage, and then on court one, the next biggest court. They have Hawkeye facility, but none of the other courts have it. Too expensive. It's too difficult to get all the sensors that they need round about the, the, the grass. Now, sometimes I think that we believe that church, I mean, here in this building, is like center court or court one. And that you have to stand within the censors, you know, and then God works. God doesn't work like that. God works on the outer courts as well. His spirit still works even on the frontiers. He works even in your difficult environment. You find yourself Monday to Friday, which is not like this. It's a shifting perspective about where ministry should happen, but also about who needs ministry as well. There's three people mentioned in this passage by name, as well as Peter, and none of them are likely candidates to receive the mercy he provides. Aeneas was a Hellenistic Jew. He was Jewish by background, but he had a Greek name because he had been influenced by Greek culture. They called them Hellenized Jews. And they were frowned upon from those who were the traditional Jews. And yet Peter ministers to Aeneas. doesn't matter who he is or where he's from. Tabitha was equally unlikely simply because she was a woman in a culture that looked down on women and regarded women as second-class citizens. Jesus had already turned the tables in his ministry. He had... Ministered to women. He valued women. And here is Peter, and it's nothing for him to go 10 miles to raise a dead woman. And then, most remarkable of all, is Simon the tanner. It's almost a throwaway comment in verse 43. It's almost one of these strange verses you wonder why it's in the Bible. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. What's the relevance of that? The relevance is that Peter is ministering to a Jew who is on the outmost margin of Judaism. He he probably was almost not accepted by traditional Jews. See, tanners, they killed animals and they handled dead animals. They were regarded by Jews as ceremonially unclean. Their houses had a terrible stench coming from them. They were legally forced to live on the edge of town. Probably why Simon's uh, living by the sea. If you were a woman betrothed to such a man and you discovered that he was a tanner, you could even divorce him legally just for that. And yet evidently, none of this mattered to Peter. It seems that this man was someone who had come to follow Jesus and therefore Peter was willing to associate even with him. I wonder if we interact well with those from different backgrounds. Those whom society despises, looks down upon, do we? Who do we invite into our houses, our homes? Here's a good test. In terms of hospitality, do we minister just to the somebodies or to the nobodies as well? This is an area where we can be really distinctive. God was beginning to shift the frontiers of ministry. More importantly, he was beginning... To wear thin the old biases of Peter's heart. God has a profound ability, you see, to manage change. He is the ultimate change manager. He was changing the apostle Peter. He was changing the dynamics of the church. And I wonder this morning whether we are willing to change too. Whether we are willing to go out of our comfort zones and cross boundaries into new territory for the sake of the gospel. Let me remind you that God never asks us to do anything that he is unwilling to do himself. Talk about one who pushed back boundaries. Who went further than his comfort zone. Who endured cataclysmic change. You're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was fully God, he crossed a never-before-transgressed border. God, fully God, became fully man. Jesus not only exchanged heaven for earth, but he exchanged glory for ignominy. He changed a crown of gold for a crown of thorns. And a royal diadem in his hand for nails through his hands. Instead of being exalted on a throne, he was lifted up on a cross. And finally, the God of life Even crossed another boundary, he experienced death itself. And he died in your place and in my place for our sins. This morning, Jesus invites all of us as we come to this table to trust in him. Who endured that colossal transition for us. He invites us to turn from our sins and to follow him. Jesus crossed every conceivable boundary to be our saviour. If you're not a Christian this morning, I wonder if you might be ready to cross the boundary to come to faith in Jesus. And if you are a Christian, I wonder if we're even ready to cross the coffee lunch just to practically love somebody in Jesus' name. Let's pray.